Well, thank you, Pastor Tyler, Harbor City Church. Merry almost Christmas. Um, I'm so excited you guys are joining us for this Christmas service. It's so um, it's awesome to see you here. Uh, I got to start this uh, message with a little bit of a, a poll, okay? And that is, what is your favorite thing to eat for Christmas? Kids, you guys can feel free to interact with me if you'd like. All right, I, I, need, I need some interaction here. What is your favorite thing to eat for Christmas? I, I hear cookies up here. Cookies? Pie. Okay. Tur- did I hear turkey? Indian food. Okay. Crab legs. Okay. Yeah. Anybody else, kids? Gingerbread cookies. Hey, that, he wins because that's actually going to be my illustration. Okay. My, um, truly my favorite thing to eat at Christmas is gingerbread cookies, especially when I was a kid and it hasn't, not, hasn't really changed there. I just love gingerbread cookies. I love gingerbread cookies with the sprinkles on them, with the icing, and of course, you got to eat gingerbread cookies with a big glass of milk. Um, but you know, the older that I get, the less and less uh, satisfying gingerbread cookies are to me. You know, it's like, man, they're good for a moment, but once they're gone, they're gone. There's nothing, no like substance to gingerbread cookies. It's not like it really stays with you. You know, as I think about the Christmas story uh, that we just read, I've realized that a lot of people think about the Christmas story the same way that sometimes we think about gingerbread cookies. You know, it gives us a flash of good feeling for a little bit, but somehow feels like there's not enough substance to it. It's, it's like gingerbread cookies. We only do those around Christmas time. It seems like we only tell the Christmas story sometimes around Christmas time. You know, the more skeptical among us may think of it like a Christian fairy tale, But I found that when we deny the truth of the Christmas story, we also are denying the hope that it offers. So this morning, I want to show you in our short time together why I think it's a mistake to think of the Christmas story that way. I want to show you that the Christmas story can actually be the greatest comfort to you in all the world. In our time together, I want to consider three questions about the Christmas story. Is the Christmas story real? What does it mean? And why does it matter? For our text today, I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, all the way to verse 23. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. All right, here we go. A virgin birth, angels, God becoming a man. Don't these things sound a little bit more like a Christian fairy tale than a real story? And that leads us to our first question. Is the Christmas story real? When I say, by the way, is the Christmas story real? I want to be real. I want to be clear. I'm not asking if this story is a real story, but does the story correspond to real history? Is it true? Did it really happen? You know, most of the time the Christmas story is read, we read it from the Gospel of Luke. And by the way, that is significant because Luke was not an original disciple of Jesus. 
He wasn't there when any of the events that he writes of took place. He's actually a lot like us. He didn't start out seeing these things and believing and becoming a Christian. He became a Christian because he investigated the truthfulness of the stories that he wrote about. And at the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke tells us why he is writing this, why he is writing his gospel, because he wanted to investigate the events around Jesus to see if they were true. Look with me at Luke chapter 1, beginning in one, uh, verse 1 through 4. We'll have this available for you on the screen. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that had been accomplished among us, just as, though, uh, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, key word, and ministers of the word had, have delivered them to us, verse 3, this is why he's writing the book, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write... An orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is the the man to whom Luke is writing this book. Why does he do this? Verse 4, that you may have, here's another key word, certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke writes his gospel so that those who read it will know a few things. One, that he has investigated everything that is in his gospel. Two, that he has met with eyewitnesses and those who were firsthand observers, and three, that those who are taught these things that are in his gospel would have a certainty for their basis of belief. You know, for a, a historian, these documented eyewitness accounts, which are all throughout Luke's gospel, if you read through Luke's gospel, you meet characters that aren't in Matthew and Mark and Luke, um, or sorry, Matthew, Mark, and John, because Luke has, has all these different eyewitnesses. Now, you know, uh, ancient writers wouldn't cite their sources the same way that we would do today. Ancient writers would instead list the name of the people in the story and where they live so that if anyone wanted to investigate the truthfulness of the story, they could simply go to the place and ask the people that were interviewed, did this really happen? That's exactly what Luke does in his gospel. And again, as a historian, these documented eyewitness accounts are the gold standard for history. They don't mean that that what the eyewitnesses say is true, but they are the highest form of of evidence. That Jesus is a real historical figure, no one who has studied history doubts. Uh, Bart Ehrman, he's a New Testament scholar who is vehemently not a Christian. He says in response to the idea that Jesus was not a real person, uh, and I quote, This is not even an issue for scholars of antiquity. The reason for thinking Jesus existed is because he is abundantly attested in early sources. If you want to go where the evidence goes, I think that atheists have done themselves a disservice by jumping on the bandwagon of mythicism. In other words, that Jesus and the stories around Jesus were developed as myths, because frankly, it makes you look foolish to the outside world. If that's what, if that's what you're going to believe, you just look foolish. So even skeptical scholars believe that Jesus was a real historical person and real historical people are born. But Luke's gospel also claims that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. How can this be? This is a really good question. You know, but Christians have good reasons for believing the virgin birth. By the way, I uh, promised um, our team here that I would stay on track to go and finish this sermon in 12 minutes and 24 seconds, 23 seconds. So I don't have time to get into the entirety of the doctrine of the virgin birth here, but I would love to. 
Um, I'll be up here after the service. If you have questions about the virgin birth, I would love to discuss with you. Christians have very good reasons for believing in the virgin birth. But I will say, sometimes it, people who get stuck on the issue of the virgin birth are missing the bigger picture of what was communicated in Matthew chapter 1. Um, the Christmas story is not just that a virgin had a child, but that God became a man. More important than the virgin birth is how the Son of God was born. We should stop and marvel that the same God who spoke the universe into existence became a part of his own creation. That like, that's like an author who would write himself into his very own novel. This is the great miracle of Christmas, and it is the heart of the Christmas story. And so we've seen here that we have reason to believe uh, from documented evidence like Luke's gospel and others that Jesus was a real historical figure who was born, that the virgin birth was attested to uh, by the the earliest Christians. And so we have to go to our second question. Well, what does that then mean? The Christmas story means something wonderful. The Christmas story, in fact, is God's answer to man's greatest question. Let me explain. You know, there is a question. Um, if, you, if you ever read through kind of the great philosophers all throughout history, there is a question that has been identified by both Christian theologians and atheistic philosophers alike as man's greatest question. It goes something like this. If there is a God and he is good and powerful, as the Christians claim, then why doesn't he do something about all the wrong that is in the world? It's a good question, isn't it? It's, it's led thousands of people to conclude uh, that God must not exist. But it's not just a question uttered by philosophers studying the meaning of life. It's a question that has been asked by the bedside of a, of a dying family member. It's been a question that's been asked by physicians as they care for someone with a wasting sickness by paramedics at the scene of a terrible accident. Isn't this question one of the most honest questions human beings have ever asked, God, why? Haven't you asked this question? Hasn't there been a moment in your life where you've looked at something and said, God, if you're good and you can do something about this, then why aren't you making this right? And I want to say to you, the Christmas story is God's answer to this question. The Christmas story tells of Jesus being born and being called Emmanuel, that is God with us. The Christmas story teaches us that the Son of God became man precisely because of all the sin and suffering in the world. And he came because he's good, and he came because he came to do something about it. And what he did was live the life that we were supposed to live, and then die the death that we deserved. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again. He defeated death and ascended to the Father and has made a way for all people to be reconciled to God and each other. If God is good and powerful, why doesn't he do something about sin and suffering? The answer is he has. And what he has done is the story of, of Christmas. Looked at the questions, is the Christmas story real and what does it mean? I want to turn to our final question, why does it matter? Why does it matter? The Christmas story matters because it gives us living hope. Our hope is in the name the angel foretold Jesus would bear, the name Emmanuel, God with us. The Christmas story gives us living hope because God is acting in human history. He has not left us to ourselves. 
It gives us living hope because God has been revealed to us in Jesus, and he has been revealed as a God who loves us over and over again. When Jesus spoke of the Father, he shared that the Father loves his creation, for God so loved the world. It gives us living hope because Jesus is God with us. I want you to think about that name for a moment. Jesus is not God against us. Jesus is not God apart from us. Jesus is not God over us. Jesus is God with us. Jesus experienced everything it means to be human. So you know what that means for you? Let me personalize this a little bit. With Jesus experiencing everything it means to be human, Jesus, he gets you. He understands you. The author of Hebrews would say that we do not have in Jesus a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, even as we are, yet is without sin. And he doesn't use the fact that he has been tempted without sin to lord it over us, but rather to draw near to us. The the, the author of Hebrews would go on to say, we should then therefore boldly come to Jesus that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus is God with us. Whatever you're going through, he's been there too. It means that he can sympathize with you. The Christmas story gives us living hope because Jesus is God. Jesus is God with, but he's also God with, did you see that last word? Us. Think about that word, us. It's not God with them. It's not God with some group that's far off. It's God with us. It includes you and me. The us invites us into a relationship with this God. Now, I came across the quote earlier um, this week of a German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, he defied Hitler and was killed because of it. He spent a good bit of his um, life in prison. And he was writing to a friend, and um, he wrote this quote, Life in a prison cell may well be compared to Advent. Advent, of course, the season of waiting on Jesus' coming. One hates, I'm sorry, one waits, hopes, and does this, that, or the other thing, things that are really of no consequence. The door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. You understand what the story of Christmas is? The story of Christmas is that God has opened the door from the outside. The Son of God has become a man that he might enable men to become sons of God. God has come, Emmanuel, God with us. That is the good news of Christmas. It's not like a gingerbread sugar high that comes and goes. It's the type of news that changes your life. So I just want to end this sermon with a, a challenge and a time for reflection. Do you believe the good news of Christmas? Do you believe the good news of Christmas? Do you believe that in Jesus, God has come? Do you believe that God has not looked out on your life or the world and given up on it, but instead he has acted and acted decisively? That God has not withheld his first and best from you. He has sent his one and only son. That Jesus Christ has revealed the character of God the Father to us and that his great love for us. It's the type of love that would not refrain from laying down his own life on the cross for you. And if God loves you like that, if God has acted like that, then surely you have hope this Christmas. Now again, I'm seeing a lot of new faces in the room. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know if things are going well. I don't know if things are going poorly. I don't know how the health of friends and family are going this year. I don't know if this is a Christmas season that's marked by broken relationships. I don't know. But I know that because Jesus has come, you have hope when you trust in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word.
which tells us the true story of Christmas, which invites us to believe. And not believe in belief, not to have faith in faith, but to believe in Jesus, the one who has come for us. To believe that, God, you have not given up on us. To believe that you are still working, that you are still making a way. And God, if you would not withhold from taking care of our greatest needs, then surely you will take care of our lesser needs. Father, I pray even right now in this room, even as um, these words come out of my mouth, Lord, that you would awaken faith in those who hear, um, that you might give them even a new thing to pray for and a new way to pray, that their faith in you would grow, that their hope in you would grow, that the sight of Jesus this Christmas would grow, and that you would receive the glory. You are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name.